Lancaster Vineyard's midweek conversation where we discuss the previous Sunday's teaching. Uh, we hope you're enjoying this podcast and, and have your own thoughts expanded and provoked by these discussions and conversations. If you've not attended the vineyard before, uh, we hope we just invite you to attend on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. You can visit LancasterVineyard.org for more information. And so uh, on Sunday, we concluded our Life's Biggest Questions uh, sermon series. And I'm here with Joel Seymour, and he talked about uh, the end, about kind of the end times. And just even a couple of questions we got that kind of stirred this uh, sermon topic and in this conversation is, one question was, why do most churches not talk about the coming of Christ and how prophecy is fulfilled in our day? And, and kind of to where we are, you know, kind of where are we now on the Revelation timeline? So those were kind of the two questions that sparked some of this. And so Joel, uh, on Sunday, just to kind of recap that, uh, that sermon, and you can find wherever you're listening at this now, you can find, uh, if you didn't listen to the whole sermon, I'd go, encourage you to go back and and listen to that but this re idea is joel spent you know the 30 to 40 minutes kind of deconstruction deconstructing probably the most prevalent view of end times in, in our culture in american culture and uh you use the word joel disp- dispensationalism that's a big Ooh, word big word uh church word um you don't hear that in any other probably any other context but the idea of that big word if you want to think of it is just this idea of a secret rapture of christ where only a portion you know just evaporate um in an instant and are taken up to jesus and most of that you know comes from if you're familiar in the 90s the left behind series and that sort of thing that's a little bit of what uh dispensationalism is all about so you kind of spent some time deconstructing that view and the, the yeah. problem with that view and then the sec the end you kind of reconstructed a different view using kingdom of god theology do you want to allude to any more of that just yeah and you're right that word dispensation we don't use a lot i mean it simply means seasons or ages and so in dispensationalism they just divide up a whole lot of the time period at least from genesis to revelation well yeah genesis to revelation and they divide up the the timeline of god's program into a whole bunch of different ages um, and that God deals differently with people in all these different ages. And it kind of probably encapsulates it that the Old Testament is God dealing with Israel. Then there's a church age where God deals with the church. And then there's okay. this rapture, like you said, a secret rapture that happens, usually followed by a seven-year tribulation where God is dealing with Israel. And then there's a 1,000-year reign of Christ afterwards. And I think what I was trying to show is that, you know, like we just believe there's two ages, uh, this age that's you know, uh, fallen world order yeah. and, and uh, sin, sickness, and death would, would describe this age we live in. And then there's the age to come, uh, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And we believe that has broken in with Jesus, and we're, we're living in between both those ages now, but a day will come, Jesus returns, and we'll only live in the age to come. And yeah. so just trying to show that some incompatibilities, plus dispensationalism generally teaches that the gifts died with the apostles, and we believe that uh, God still works in supernatural ways and still there's spiritual gifts. Yeah, I think it was good because you talked about just theology, like this is all kind of theological kind of discussion of like what you believe, but it can't just stay there because it impacts how we live and how we do things. And so, um, you know, even with this idea of part of this, consequences was there's no long-term vision for um, evangelism or discipleship or mercy and justice because everyone thought Jesus was coming back. And and I think, too, with this idea, too, I think the, the biggest difference is, right, there's really just two comings of Jesus, right? One of Jesus coming in birth and then 
him returning again as final judgment, whereas dispensationalism would be the, there's three, right? right. Jesus' birth, um, I, the secret rapture where he comes, and then again another, then judgment day. There's like three, and so... Yeah. And I probably should say this too, like that's not to downplay anybody that believes this. It's just one of many views. I think what my point was is a compare it to the theology that undergirds our church, Kingdom yeah. of God theology. And I think also for people to understand that by and large, this is the predominant view among American evangelical churches. It is not the predominant view in the rest of the world. Um, and also to say this is a relatively young theology yeah. uh, or viewpoint you know, from the 1800s on. And so it was just to help educate people and expose we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. You can still be a part of our church and disagree. It doesn't matter. This is a secondary issue, not a primary issue. But I thought it was important because when people hear some of the other ways that other believers and other, uh, either in other places in the world or even other denominations may believe, they may go, wait a second, you know, that doesn't sound like what I've been taught. And sure. it's just to understand You've only been taught one little slice of the pie. There's yeah. other there's other views there's here other that views. are that are legitimate, and you got to wrestle with those and figure that yeah. out too for yourself. So, uh, most of the time, right, we go when we think about this, we automatically go to Revelation, like that is the, right. the book that we go to. But what did what did Jesus? How did Jesus talk about the end? Um, you know, specifically in Matthew and Luke, how did Jesus talk about how it would end, or what about the end? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, because my guess is, as I was teaching Sunday, anybody from church world would automatically go, particularly to, like, uh, Matthew 24 through 26, because it's all about the end times, you know, and um, signs of the times, and, and Jesus talks about it. The interesting thing about that, again, and I hope people heard this on Sunday, is context. You know, all meaning is context-dependent. So what was Jesus' context? Well, he's getting ready to be crucified. He's standing in the temple. He's talked about how the temple's going to be destroyed, which it was in the year 70 A.D. And in Matthew 24, the the disciples ask, well, when will the, when will the temple be destroyed, and when will be, uh, in, what's the sign of the end times or the end of days? Um in their mind, and in, and in Mark, it's even more like identical. Um, uh, but in Matthew, you still see it that they're asking a question of when's the temple going to fall, and what they're thinking is when the temple's destroyed, that's the sign of the end. That's the end time. That's that's the last day, the day of the Lord. It's all going to happen at once. So they ask a question of an all at once event when we know it was not an all-at-once event because the temple fell 2,000 years ago and we're still here. You know, the day of the Lord hasn't happened. And so one of the interesting things of trying to interpret Matthew 24 is when is he, when is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple and when does he switch to the day of the Lord? Mm. And it's not, it's not entirely clear. And one of the things I think that surprises people is to, is to think almost everything that he said was fulfilled by 70 AD. So all the signs of the ends, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, false messiahs, all of that, that had all happened up to 70 AD. And so is he talking about coming up to the last day, or is he still talking about the temple? Hmm. Um, others will say, well, doesn't he say like, you know, um, and, and you're, too, you're too young for this, but in the 70s there was a great song that made it into some hymnals, and it was based all in this theology called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Um, DC Talk, Larry Norman originally did it, DC Talk redid it, and so the 90s got it, and that really, you know, it fit well in the left behind, because it's like two men walking up the hill, one taken, one left standing still, which we've yeah. all been ready. Because uh, Jesus talks about that. 
The interesting thing about that is if you look at the word taken, it's almost always used for taken towards judgment. Hmm. So it's not, it doesn't not, seem to be a yeah. secret rapture. They're taken to a good place. In fact, Jesus tells this exact same story uh, in Luke 17. And so in Luke 17, verses 34 through 37, he says the same exact thing. There's going to be two people in a bed, one taken, one left. There's going to be two people on a hill, one taken, one left. Um, and then the disciples said, well, where are they going to be taken? And he, he basically goes, well, they will be taken to where the vultures go and where there are dead bodies. Well, this, this does not sound like they're taken to a good place. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <it's> not. <laughs> you're not meeting Jesus. Or if you are, you're meeting him for judgment, which is a, seems uh. to be the case. And so just looking at the context, if there is a secret rapture, I don't think these verses would be the ones you should go and, and try to prove it from. Because it seems to be, he's talking about at the end, people will be taken for judgment. Mm. Well, and I know for me, uh, you mentioned... Um, probably being too young for certain things, but yeah. you know, I think the image I have, and that's obviously very different than, you know, growing up. Uh, I think I remember watching at least the one, the first Left Behind movie, and it was instantly like I just remember the airplane scene, the clothes and everything yeah. evaporating, <laughs> yeah. and you know, then you know, um, you know, even Phil had this idea that for church we should have just put clothes out like throughout the sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, just, you've been left behind. <laughs> you know, just there was this idea. And I remember as a kid, like even after watching that, like I, I remember, um, I think I, I, I don't know if I was coming home one day or something and, and nobody was home. And, and my initial thought was, oh, they've been taken. They've been yeah. raptured. I'm left behind. And there were, seemed to be, man, it was a very fear kind of fear-based thing of of not being ready and just uh just i guess fear was tended to be the motivator on all this because it was this idea you better be ready because jesus could be taken and you'd be left behind and all these things i can just remember even some of that talk in church what i mean was has it was always that kind of fear-based or do you think that was just even particular to the season or uh, what do you, what do you, well, I mean, I think fear is a good short term motivator. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if I go to the doctor and he tells me, you know, I'm on the verge of being diabetic or, you know, uh, you know, if my cholesterol's high, I'm going to have blockages in my heart and have, you know, whatever heart disease, uh, fear may motivate me to eat well for a week or two or exercise or whatever. But I've never found fear to be a great long-term motivator. The better motivator would be, man, I really love my wife and kids. Mm. I don't want to be healthy for them now and for as long as possible. Yeah. I think church world has bought in. It's just it's easy to get decisions based off fear. Yeah. I, mean, I think why uh, preaching hell is is popular at, at revivals or evangelistic services. Why? Well, you can get decisions you sure. know, if, if people buy into a hell. Um, and and let's be clear. We need to talk about health sure, from time yeah, to yeah. time. It's, it's real, and it, you don't want to go there. <laughs> but I'm not sure when I look at the Scriptures, nobody yeah. ever uses fear, at least in the Gospels, yeah. to get people to make decisions. Um, it, it's always uh, Christ's sacrifice. It's always love is the motivator. God loves you. Um, he sent you a Savior. You killed Him. So, I mean, there's certainly guilt and conviction, which there should sure. be. But it doesn't seem to be uh, this fear-based yeah. thing. Um, and I think the end times thing, particularly if you look at like a book like Revelation, it's written to encourage people. It's a book of hope yeah. because these people were suffering so bad. So 
Yeah. Does does Jesus even in his end times talk? I don't know if you want to call it fear, and there's a solemnness there sure. in Matthew 25. It makes sure your lamp's trimmed and burning. You're full of the oil yeah. of the Spirit. Make sure you're multiplying your talents and your influence and, and not just burying it, but using it for the kingdom. Make sure you're taking care of the least of these. Is there a solemnness there that I'm going to stand on Judgment Day and have to give an account? Yeah, yeah certainly. But I'm not sure the end times thing was supposed to be this total fear-based of, careful, Johnny, because you might come home and your parents are sucked up into heaven and you've been left behind. I, I, don't, I don't know that that was ever the purpose. Yeah, because it too, it was, I noticed too, it, it could be used for behavior, you know, like things, yeah. because certain things, you don't want to be doing that because, yeah. you know, Jesus could be coming back and it doesn't go even more to the root issue of... <laughs> I can remember wanting to see a certain movie, I can't even remember the movie now, and uh, and it wasn't anything sure. raunchy or anything, but I don't know what it was rated, I can't remember, but it was like... All this end times talk was big. I was in youth group, and it was like, do I want to be in that movie theater when Jesus comes back? You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah. I mean, obviously, I want to make sure what I'm watching and all that. Yeah. I'm not taking any of that away, but this idea that he could come back any moment, and, and I'm just living on pins and needles, that's, that's not Jesus. Yeah. So uh, we're going to transition to just even to a different kind of topic, because uh, as you talked about earlier, you talked about just dispensationalism, just this idea of God working in different ages, you know, and mm-hmm. a big part of that was that somehow in this different ages that, that God treated Israel, Israel differently. And so, um, why do you, how so, and like, why do you think this is problematic of just, there's this differentiation between how God treats Israel and how God treats the rest of people? Yeah. And I want to be careful here because I would be the first to say, Johnny, I'm not an expert, you know, so I'm wrestling through all this myself and reading the scriptures and and, and this has been a long journey, but wrestling through it. So I think again, because dispensationalism is the predominant view among American evangelicals of the end times, there has been this huge emphasis on the secular state of, of Israel. And the theology behind it is, is that God's people are called Israel and, um, they existed, you know, up until the time, I mean, they still exist, but God dealt with them a certain way up until Jesus. Then there's the church age, and that's another people of God. That's people who come through Jesus. And yet then at the end of that, when the rapture would happen in their theology, then God begins to deal with Israel again. And um, what it ends up doing is it ends up creating almost like there's two second comings it, with the rapture. It almost creates like two people of God and two ways to get saved to yeah. some degree. Um, and I just, I don't see that in the scriptures. Uh, um, you get saved by coming to know Jesus. Yeah. And even as after Jesus dies and resurrects all the early church folks, the missionaries, the church planners, the disciples, the apostles, they're a, in the beginning, they're all Jews. And they come to be the people of God, not because they were genetically Jewish. I mean, they had an upper hand because they had the whole Old Testament. They had all the promises. They knew all the scriptures that were written at the time. Um, But the way they really continued as the people of God is they were faithful to Jesus. They accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and His grace covered them. So the way I look at the people of God is... God created the people of God through Abraham. Yeah. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you realize the people of God are the people who remained faithful to God. It's not just because they're a part of the nation of Israel. Right. They were faithful. Yeah. In fact, you'd see that in like in Numbers 14. Um, all of Israel in the desert have been traveling for two years from uh, Egypt. 
they all get the promise of the promised land, but when spies are sent into the promised land and they all come back, eight of the spies go, man, it's terrible. There's, the cities are huge, armies are huge. They got giants, we'll never make it. You know, oh, we're gonna get killed. We should live in Egypt. Two guys, Joshua and Caleb go, no, 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 this is the promised land, man. Yeah. We can do this, God's mm. with us. And in that moment, God goes, uh, well, I should say this too, like the whole nation of Israel sided with the eight people and they yeah. were fearful and they say, take us back to Egypt. And God says, listen, that group will mm. never enter the promised land. Yeah. And they all wandered for 38 more years until they all died off. <laughs> sure. The only people who entered were like Joshua and Caleb and their families and whoever had been born after that time period. Yeah. And so you already see that the people of God are the ones that place their faith in God mm. and they stay faithful as a remnant. And then that people of God continues because when Jesus comes in the scene, they place their faith in Jesus. Yeah. And they're people of God. Romans... Uh, 9 through 11, which can get a little thorny trying to figure it all out, but it talks about Israel yeah. and, and Gentiles. And it talks about here's the faithful people of God throughout the nation of Israel, and that Gentiles are grafted into this people of God. And how are they grafted in? Through Jesus. Jesus. And it's Jesus as the center. And so I, I see that. So that's one you know problem area is I don't think there's two people of God. I think there's one people of God, and the way you become a people of God is you accept Jesus. Um, I see the early church, even the fellow Jews were leading fellow Jews to Jesus. That's how you became a part of the people yeah. of God. Um, I think it raises, I think this theology then of dispensationalism at times has, has caused us to treat the secular state of Israel as the same kind of theocracy of, you know, first and second kings. The, the secular state of Israel today, I'm grateful they have their own state. Um, we should be sympathetic towards them. Uh, our heritage is from that. I think we should, uh, they've been treated horribly throughout history, so we should be sympathetic. Um, but I don't think we should confuse the secular state of Israel with uh, a theocracy, meaning theocracy, meaning God as king in, mm. that was in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's a little different. Yeah. Um, and there's times, I brought this up the other day, is if there if there's mistreatment of say let's just not even say all of Palestinians but let's say it's mistreatment of Palestinian Christians if that makes somebody you know feel any better, um, I think it's okay to critique the secular state of Israel and go hey this isn't okay to mistreat people mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm against Jews or I'm against yeah. Israel it's just I, th I think we need to have the way of Jesus and and be open to critique when we see those sure. kind of things happening um, yeah. I might stop or I might get myself more say, deep than I want to be. To, uh, yeah. A lot of political things, you know, <laughs> revolving around that and certain things. And, um, yeah. So anyways, we'll just, we'll just stop. You don't there. even want to touch it. I guess. Yes. Yeah. I, I won't even go there. That's a whole other conversation. But, um, so again, the whole point of this was not to, again, condemn those who believe, you know, dispensationalism. It was just kind of deconstructing some issues some things that you have to, if you choose that route, here's the ramifications of those or the weaknesses of those. Um, and But also provide a another view of the end times, this idea of the kingdom of God theology. Are there any other views that we need to be aware of or to think through? Yeah, there, there's, there's, well, there's quite a few actually, but I mean, so part of it is there are, there are at least four different views of kind of, um, let's, let's use this, 
you know, million dollar word, millennium of the millennium. So part of all these views is that distinguishes them is how do they deal with this thousand year reign of Christ that's mentioned in Revelations 20. Um, uh, uh, by the way, that's the only where it's mentioned specifically in a book that's highly symbolic, and yet somehow um, we've pulled that one 1,000-year thing out, and it's become a whole thing on its own. So it, it needs to be wrestled with some. So the earliest view was what's called amillennialism. And so amillennial said that when Jesus ascended into heaven, it, it just says it's all, it's all his rule um, has already begun. They would see he, he rose from the dead, he's ascended into heaven. We're told numerous times through the Old, or the New Testament, excuse me, that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. And so he's in the ruling position, and there will come a day when not only the ruling position actually gets consummated to an actual rule and reign on earth, but they would, they would see it as the millennial is symbolic, the thousand years is just symbolic that he's already ascended to heaven, he's already there, he's already ruling. Gotcha. Uh, the next view would be like classic premillennialism, um, which would also see that his rule had already started positionally, but there would um, come a time where he would, um, let me look up my definitions just to make sure, because this all stuff runs in my head. So, yes, so in this view, he's already started like in heaven ruling, but he is going to come back before a thousand year reign. His second coming would be then. He will literally rule over the world for a thousand years. Um, Satan's locked up, I think, during the thousand years, if I remember all this right. And then he eventually is released. Jesus defeats him once and for all. And then it's a new heaven and a new earth after that. I think I'm getting all that right. Um, oh. The next view would be postmillennialism, And so this one's an interesting view, and you're seeing it more in charismatic circles right now. Um, and a postmillennial view is, is that the church is going to allow the kingdom of God to so much rule and reign through it, that it and it is going to fight for justice, and that we are going to transform the world into this close-to-perfect place to the point it's ready for Jesus to return. Um, I see why people are attracted to it. I'm not sure that one fits well with Kingdom of God theology and the already not yet, because we're, we know we're living in this tension until he consummates the kingdom. It doesn't yeah. seem to be that we consummate it and make it happen. But yeah. it, so, And the other one is kind of more were classic, uh, dispens it's called dispensational premillennialism, which mm -hmm. is all the ages we talked about, secret rapture, seven years tribulation, Jesus returns at his second coming, and he starts a thousand-year reign. And I've already said I don't think that one fits as well. There's also views, and we probably don't have time to get into today yeah. unless you really want to, but there's also, uh, I think when you're talking about views of the end times, it's worth people investigating the ways to read like Revelation. Yeah. Because there's at least five major ways to interpret Revelation. Mm -hmm. And again, depending on what church you grew up in, most of us aren't taught other ways. We're just taught one way. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think it's, that's, impo that's an important um, thing to, to consider is, uh, and that some of the th resources that I was looking into just even while we were talking about this, is this idea of, how to read that um, apocalyptic literature. It has its own style that it, it does have a lot of symbolism 
And so even if you, a, a great resource is um, the Bible Project, and, and they have a lot of great videos, both uh, a video on how to read Revelation, um, and I think there's a couple parts to that uh, on the different ways, and it, it kind of shows, like walks you through that, but even how to read, you know, apocalyptic literature, both like Daniel and um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel and all these things, yeah. Revelation, you have to read it in a certain way that you don't, it's not you don't you should read it differently than how you read the gospels or read it, you know different things it's yeah and i think what makes it so hard i was talking to somebody at alpha this week and they were talking about the sermon sunday yeah. and one of the things they were talking about we, they had said man i've always been fascinated by revelation and i said you know i said one of the things that makes revelation interesting or well, not interesting it is interesting but what makes it difficult to read for us we don't have any literature that looks like that sure like, yeah like but you have other, like, we know how to read poetry. So that helps me when I'm reading Psalms or when I'm reading uh, Song of Solomon. Um, I, I know we have history books. So when I read First and Second Chronicles, I kind of know how to approach it because it's history. Um, we have letters. So the epistles, I know how to read them because they're letters. Uh, we read stories. We read narratives. So the Gospels, I can pick it up. Stories, yeah. Yeah, I get it. There's nothing like Revelation in today's um, yeah. world, but in the first century, there was all kinds of apocalyptic literature. Yeah. So the original readers, which it was written to them first to be a source of hope and, and encouragement, um, they knew how to read it. Yeah. Um, they knew that you don't look at like flying locust and immediately go. I wonder if that means they're Huey helicopters. Like that was big in the 70s and 80s, like Great Planet Earth, that you would look for symbols. Well, what could that be in the modern world? Well, they didn't look at it like that. They weren't looking in their world going, well, I bet those locusts are, you know, I don't know what would be the equivalent in the Roman Empire, spears and arrows flying through the air or something. They weren't looking for it because it didn't, it didn't mean that the symbols had meaning to them. Yeah. And we look at it, A, we totally skip the literary context, like what, how we should approach apocalyptic literature. Yeah. And we just jump to, what's it mean today? And that's not the right thing. You always want to look at what yeah. did it mean back then, and it can never mean back then, um, or it can never mean today what it didn't mean back then. Yeah. I mean, it, there may be some foreshadowing and some double meaning. I don't want to take that away. But figure out what it meant back then first before you try to extrapolate yeah. what it means today. Yeah, I think that's important. And, and I think that even those resources from Bible Project, if you if you just literally go to BibleProject.com, there's a thing on um, on a, that that kind of how to read that apocalyptic. I can't even say that word. I oh, know. Uh, Not only is Revelation <laughs> hard to say, the literary genre is hard to say. Yes. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of great resources because it's it's helpful to. Um, to understand some of those symbolisms, and they give you examples and ways that uh, allows you to interpret that, uh, you know, whatever book just more accurately, and and how it impacts just the today. And you can't skip that step, right? We so often just go to the modern context without going first through what did it mean back then. So, I mean, I, I just give one helpful hint maybe as people are reading yeah. it. Um, Put yourself in the shoes that it's 90 AD. Uh, Jesus has been gone almost 50 years, or he's actually been gone about 50 years. Um, the Roman Empire is beginning more systematic persecution. It's not full-on systematic, but it's happening more and more. There was the assumption um, 
that Jesus was coming back soon. You can see it in the letters of Paul. His early letters look like, man, he's going back. By his later letters, it's like, be patient, you know? Mm. And so you're discouraged because you know the kingdom's real. You've seen people healed. You've heard prophecies. You've tasted the powers of the age to come. And yet there's this massive empire that is squelching the, the, the very low percentage, the minority. I mean, there's like not many Christians in the empire compared to the whole you know, population. Yeah. And you're wondering, is evil going to win? Yeah. Go into it with that. And then as you come across the ideas of symbols and false prophets, and, and think of, too, the, the uh, Roman cult, the Caesar, the emperor cult of Caesar's divine, mm-hmm. and he's from God, and that's what the Romans are saying. And you're saying, no, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And read Revelation with that kind of thing. If you're desperate, you're suffering, what would it mean to you to read that? Mm. And, and I think that can be a help. And there's, there's way more help that's, that's needed. I, I mean, I still don't get it totally. Sure. But I think going into it with that mindset is a big help. Yeah. I think it's just, like, it's just helpful, too, as, as we think through this, just our, the part we play in just this already not yet, this already the, just leaning into that age to come, you know, just still believing that God... Um, wants us to experience and taste the kingdom that he's equipped us as the church to to be those vessels for people to taste and see that and we keep doing that until until he comes and that's that's our role that's our job um yeah i agree i would say too and uh, i don't know if you have more thoughts maybe this is even a good place to wrap up but you know i think what struck me and and i hadn't i hadn't really looked at it this way until i was doing a deep dive last week preparing for the message but and I shared this Sunday, but, you know, Acts 1, Jesus spends 40 days yeah. teaching um, via the Holy Spirit. So I think for the 40 days between resurrection and ascension, Jesus taught uh, in his glorified body. But I also think the way the language reads, he taught via the Holy Spirit without him present, because that's the only way he's going to be teaching disciples for the next 2,000 years. So he's training his disciples like, you had me for three years. Now you're going to have to listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you to teach. Mm-hmm. For, to get teaching. And so he's done that for 40 days, and it says he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And these guys still don't get it, and they still think it's geographical, they still think it's political, and they, they end up saying in Acts 1, 6, uh, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to do that? You know, And they're, they're still not getting it. If there's ever a perfect time for Jesus to say, boys, here's the prophetic timeline, here's what you need to look for, here's how you need to be living, and because of this, you know, here's the 14 signs, whatever. You know, he, this is the place to do it. Yeah. And he doesn't do it. He says, those dates and times are not even for you to know. That's for the Father. Mm-hmm. But you stay in Jerusalem, receive the Holy Spirit, and then go be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, that's the town they were at a time. In Judea, that's the kind of the, the region they lived in. To Samaria, that's kind of one step beyond the region they lived in, and then to the ends of the earth, everywhere you go. Be my witnesses. I think if I could summarize Jesus' teaching on the end times, it would be that. Mm-hmm. Is that I think it's important to under, understand Revelation. I think it's important to understand Matthew 24 and 25. And, and please read it, look at it, do a deep dive. But in the end, whatever you learn should motivate you to be more filled with the Holy Spirit and then witness for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. 
I get nervous when people read books and books and books and look at charts and charts and charts and, and today's headlines and try to decipher the end times and, and they're not having the same passion to be filled with the Spirit and go out and witness for Jesus. Mm. I think that's the priority. Yeah, and that's part of it as we you know end this and end our series because when we ask these questions, that's one of the things is what story are you telling yourself? You know, yeah. what story are you being invited into? And um, the reality is when we think about the end, we use this kingdom of God theology. This is our story that we're you know taking the, this question to and understanding, trying to understand it as we take it to the kingdom of God theology or this story of this idea. Um, that should impact how we live our life. And, and I think leaning into those things and being focused in our emotional and um, just what we're passionate about, be about that, not all the, you can get sidetracked in a lot of different ways. And, yeah. and I think it's just a call to, to be ready, like Jesus says, but to, to lean into being his witness, to just showing people like you could be, you can live in, in a different kingdom than the age that we're experiencing. So with that, uh, this will wrap up our midweek conversation on just what about the end. We're going to keep doing these uh, just to kind of uh, talk a little deeper for Sunday service and just maybe even some what's going on at the church. And so uh, we hope you enjoy them. So with that, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Johnny. Appreciate it.